One of the main challenges that a mom of a child with autism has is that their child has a hard time communicating. This is extremely hard. It's not only hard, but it creates a barrier between you and your child and your child and the outside world. I can't tell you how many times I have said, if only Remy could just tell me what she wants. If only she could tell me why she's upset. If only she could answer the question yes or no. Here's what's happening in autism. Our kids don't realize that when we use our mouths to talk, when we gesture with our bodies, when our tone of voice changes, when we use our facial expressions, that they are all being used to send other people signals to relay a message. It's not that our kids can't see us do these things. They just don't recognize them as being pointers to messages. So because of this, they don't pay attention to all of those signals, so they don't learn to do them as well. In this episode, we are talking about using our bodies to communicate, to use nonverbal communication. So I'm going to break this down for you, and I'm also going to share something that we taught Remy in the very beginning that changed everything. So I'm so glad you're here. This is going to be a really good episode. Welcome to Accepting the Unacceptable, a podcast for parents raising children with neurological differences. My five-year-old daughter, Remy, has autism and epilepsy. And while this hasn't been the easiest road... It's a road with more wonder and adventure than I could have ever imagined. I'm here to give you encouragement and share wisdom and stories to help you along in your own journey. Because let's face it, this parenting thing is not easy. I'm your host, Jody Warshawski, a wife, a mother of four, and a gal just trying to figure all this stuff out. Thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the show. I'm really excited about this episode because I get to share something profound that I learned in the early days of Remy's autism journey. So just to give you a little background, I'm Jody, your host, and I have four kids. One of my kids is Remy. She's five and she has a rare form of epilepsy called PCDH19, and it also causes her to have autism as well. So when Remy was two and a half, we got an autism diagnosis and the signs were there before, but because she had epilepsy, I wasn't really sure if a lot of the signals that Remy was giving me were because of her epilepsy or there was more going on. And to be honest, I didn't know anything about autism. So she got a diagnosis at two and a half and we were really fortunate because Me and my husband, Zach, were able to take this parent training for autism that taught us how to work with Remy so that she could learn how to communicate and make choices and play with others, and she could learn how to function in the world. So we took a 12-week training, and they were training on a book that I'm sharing right now. It's called An Early Start for Your Child with Autism. 
And this has been a life-changing book because Sally Rogers, the author, and two other authors, they created this program. I guess it's a program. I, I guess that's what you could call it. A teaching, maybe. They created this teaching based on all the kiddos that they've helped through the years. And people that apply these teachings to their kids, their kids have a much better chance at functioning in this world without needing so much assistance. Of course, there's all different levels of autism. There's some people on the higher end of the spectrum where they do struggle with a lot of things, but they can be more independent and they can grow up and get a job and get married and have a family and do all the things that us moms could only dream of for our kids. And then there's the other kiddos that they call on the lower functioning side or severe side. I think any of those labels are horrible, but those are the kiddos that need more assistance and maybe they will throughout their adulthood. So whether your child is on the higher end of the functioning side of autism or the lower end, working on functioning in this world at a very early age gives them the tools that they'll need so that they can learn how to communicate and so that they can navigate this world as best as they can. I feel so strongly about this book because we came into autism not knowing anything. And when we really started to dive in and start practicing the things that are in this book, we saw a change in Remy. She went from playing by herself and not wanting to engage with other people to being extremely social. She went from me having to guess everything that she wanted to her starting to make choices and to communicate those choices. And a lot of us parents get really hung up on the fact that our kids can't talk. Some of them can, but a lot of them, especially at the early ages, they can't. And I know for me, that was where my focus was, is if she could only speak, then she could tell us what's wrong. Then she could tell us what she wants. But here's the thing with autism. Just because someone has words doesn't mean that they can communicate those words in a way that you understand what's going on with them. And that's the struggle that parents have. And so I love this book because it teaches you how to teach your child that communication is more than just words. And when they can start seeing the power of communication and they can start seeing that when they are able to tell you their needs and you respond to those needs, it makes them extremely happy. A lot of parents, me included, we see that our kids struggle. We see them having meltdowns and we don't know how to help them. And Sometimes we don't know why they're having a meltdown. Sometimes we don't know why they just lose it. And then other times we know it's because we don't understand what they're trying to say, but there's really nothing that we could do because they can't talk. 
And when we ask them something, they don't respond in a way that anyone can call communication. So this book really does focus a lot on communication. This chapter focuses a lot on communication. And I love talking about it because this is the gold. This is where the gold lies. This is what us parents really want to know. And unfortunately, when we go down to the office and get a diagnosis of autism for our kids, they don't say, okay, now you can sign up for the class and learn all about autism. They just kind of send you off and go, okay, good luck. That is putting our kids at a real disadvantage. If we're lucky enough, maybe we can get them in a therapy if we know which one to get them into. Or if we have a lot of money or really good insurance or the list goes on and on. I think that there is a lack of resources for our kids and the waiting list for a lot of these therapies are very long. And then some of the therapies are not very good. So we panic. Us as parents, we panic because all we've heard ever since we've researched the word autism is that you better start on therapy as soon as you can because you don't want them to get too old because then after a while, nothing's going to work. So we hear this. We know this. But we don't really know what to do because our hands are tied. There's only so much we could do. But here's the great news. Our kids are going to learn the most from us parents. And whether we have them in the right therapy or not, or whether we have private tutors or the right school or whatever it is, there's so much that we as parents and we as family members can do that can make a huge impact. So when you read things like, You really need to get them in therapy for 40 hours a week if you want to see improvement. When you read things like that, if you are applying a lot of these things in the book, the time that you spend applying those things, you can just count those as therapy hours because that's exactly what it means. And you can be so much more effective because you know your child. So a lot of the things that they teach in the book, it's uncomfortable. And your child might push back on some of this because you're going to have to change what you do. You have to change how you interact with them. Not everything overnight, all at once. But the point here is for us parents to do a little bit less for our kids so that they have to do a little more so they can gain those skills. Because our kiddos, the ones that are on the spectrum, or the ones that have other neurological disabilities, they don't pick up on the things that other kids naturally pick up on. So when you have a neurotypical child, I think us parents really like to take a lot of the credit for why they are how they are. And we can take some of the credit. I mean, we are their parents, but it's not like we really have to sit down and teach our kids how to talk. They just start talking because they listen to us. We don't have to teach our kids how to play. They just play. So a lot of these skills that most kids have, they've learned them on instinct. But in autism, it's not so easy. It's not as easy for them. And there's so many different reasons why, but that's not what we're talking about here. 
We're just saying that there are tools that you can have in your tool belt and you can really drastically make a huge impact in your child's life. And I know this because I've seen it with Remy. If we didn't do any therapy, if we didn't take this training, if we didn't apply anything that we've learned, then we would just look at Remy and see all the things that she can't do and see that she can't talk and she can't communicate and she's not understanding what people are saying. We would continue to do everything for her and she would be in a lot worse situation than she is now. I can tell you with confidence that Remy is doing the way that she's doing because we have kept at it. And you are here for a reason. You are your child's mom or dad for a reason because you have the strength in you to make a difference in your child's life. And I know that you're tired and I know that you're overwhelmed and that you don't have enough people to support you. I know this because there's just not enough resources. That is true. But you are here for a reason. There's no one that can do it better than you can. And you might not have all the tools right now, but I promise the answers are out there and I'm going to give you some of them today. And if you start applying them to your child and to how you interact with your child, I promise you, you'll see a huge difference. So I'm going to stop ranting about that now. And I want to just tell you to go on Amazon, search the book in early start for your child with autism, put it in your cart, go to the checkout, put your credit card in, have it sent to your house. You can have it at your house in like two days. This is the book that I'm teaching from. I'm going chapter by chapter. I think the chapter that I'm doing today, I think it's chapter seven or eight. And each episode is just going through each chapter. So if this is your first episode that you've ever heard, go back to episode 10. That's our autism journey. And then 11 is when I start the training. I start teaching from the book. And it's really good to start from there because each chapter that I go through is building on the last one. So yeah, this one could stand alone, but it's really good to start from the beginning because you need to really build those early, early steps in before you move on to the next one. Otherwise, you and your child might get really frustrated and then you just throw up your hands and say, forget it. When Zach and I did the training, it was 12 weeks and it was intense because we would learn the material and then we would learn the material on the parent night, which was like a couple hour meeting. And then we would go home and we would practice it with our kids. And then we would take our kids and bring them to a playgroup once a week. And the psychologists would coach us in the playgroup on how to play with our kids. So we really got hands-on experience with psychologists that were there to hold our hands. And unfortunately, it's not like that here. So that's why I'm telling you, go get the book. Whatever I'm talking about is in the book and they can explain everything in the book with far greater detail. And there's a lot of examples and stories in there that can help too. 
So if you have any questions, of course, you can email me or reach out at Jody at Jody or any social media. You can DM me. However, you can reach me. I'm available all the time. Or you can get the book and it explains everything in much greater detail. So without further ado, let's start the episode. So today we're talking about nonverbal communication. And I guess we could do an entire chapter on this. But one of the most profound things that we have learned, especially going through this process, is how to teach your child how to point, you know how everyone says don't point, it's rude. So this chapter goes into how to teach your child to point. And that's one of the signs of autism, I think. They tell you if you think that your child has autism, look for these signs. One of the signs is that people with autism don't tend to point. This is the reason. Communication is one of the criteria that makes someone have a diagnosis of autism. It's very hard for our kiddos to communicate. Pointing is a huge form of communication, and it's a very effective part of communication. What do you think is easier? For me to point up in the sky and say, hey, look at that plane, or If I looked at you and I said, if you look up, if you turn your head up and you look to the right, slightly past the trees, you keep looking up, not as far as the sun, a little bit down from the sun, but a little bit to your left, there's a plane in the sky. The ability to point is such an incredible ability because it tells us exactly where to look. Now, for us, pointing is one of the easiest things that we could do. But for someone with autism, that skill has to be taught. And it can't be taught overnight. It takes steps. It takes a little bit of work. But if your child can point, they can start choosing what they want. They can start telling you where they want to go. They can start building that connection that isn't there right now. And the reason why I'm saying this is because when we were going through this process, Remy wasn't able to point. And my biggest complaint, my biggest frustration was that I never knew what Remy wanted. Because every time I said, well, what do you want to eat? She would just stand there and she would just stare at me or she would not stare at me. She just wouldn't pay attention. And so I remember like, going in the pantry and saying, do you want this? And I'd pull out one thing. Do you want this? Do you want this? And I'd pull out a bunch of things and she never would like respond. And I just thought, man, if I was able to pull something out or if I was able to bring her in the pantry and say, what do you want? And she could just point to it. How much easier would life be? So this is why this chapter is so exciting because we really dive into how to get your kid to communicate. But I just have to warn you, this is an uncomfortable chapter. It's going to require you to do things that you are going to feel uncomfortable doing. And not because they're bad, but because us moms, we like to do everything for our kids. And we're used to doing everything for our kids. And that just is so much easier. So much easier. 
So this chapter, it requires you to take a little step back and have your kids start doing things on their own. I know a lot of husbands will nod right now going, yeah, I totally agree. So have you ever got that look from your mom? Like when you're a kid, you're in the grocery store and you do something to tick her off, but she can't say anything to you because she's in public. So she just looks down at you and gives you that look. That look that makes you like, ugh. Okay, well, that's a form of nonverbal communication that our kids with autism don't get. And I know you know what I'm talking about because you can have the craziest look on your face and they they don't care. So my kids know that I have a very talented eyebrow. So I can raise my eyebrows like individually and the muscles in my eyebrows are pretty strong. So my eyebrows can say a lot of different things. They can say, don't you dare. Or they can say, what are you thinking? And they can say, you better not even think about it, buddy. Or they can say, that is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. So my eyebrows can say even more than that. And if you saw me like doing the eyebrow thing, you'd know exactly what I was talking about. So this chapter is to teach you how to give your kids that eyebrow look so that your kids are scared of you. I'm just kidding. No, that's not that's not what it's about. Well, kind of. So kids with autism, they don't know that gestures mean anything. And they also don't give gestures as well. A lot of parents will tell me that they know that their child doesn't want something when they start crying. So it's almost like their kids are on or off. They're either happy or they're screaming. We need to get to a middle ground here. And the screaming and the crying, it's because your kids are frustrated. They're frustrated that they're not being heard. And I know that you know that. And that's what makes you feel so bad. So that's what we're talking about. I remember when Remy was a little baby, and I wonder if you can relate to this. I really wonder how many other parents have the same experience. I've wondered this a lot. So when Remy was a baby, she didn't cry, like, at all. I mean, she cried the day that she was born when she was being delivered. But after that, she didn't cry, like, I would tell people and they would say, well, how do you know if she's hungry? And I would say, well, I don't know. I just know. And then I feed her and then she eats and then that's it. Or how do you know when she's tired? Or how do you know when she's uncomfortable? I'd ask myself that question. I even remember Googling it. I remember nursing her in bed. She was like two months old. And I remember Googling babies that don't cry. So I'm just wondering, was it the same way for you? Did your baby not cry? Or was it the opposite? Was your baby always crying? And I'm going to take a guess. I don't really know this for sure, but I'm guessing that a lot of the kiddos that have autism that seem to be overstimulated, like sensitivity to sounds and touch, I'm guessing maybe they were the babies that were really fussy. And then Remy, she's always been understimulated. So maybe... She wasn't as fussy. I don't know. That's just a guess. I have no idea what I'm talking about. So when I look back at when Remy was a baby and her not crying, 
what I realize now is that from birth, I mean, she was born with autism. We just didn't recognize it for two and a half years. When babies cry, it's a form of communication. And she was lacking that part. She wasn't able to communicate. So crying wasn't even on her agenda. So what I got good at was I just figured out what she needed and then I filled that need. So I'm like, well, it's been a couple hours. She should probably eat. Okay, well, uh, I should probably change her diaper. I should probably give her food, you know, all of that. So I think that's what us moms, we end up doing with our kids, especially the ones who aren't communicating. We just naturally do everything for them because they're never going to tell us what they want. So we want to make sure that we cover all the areas. We want to make sure that they're not too hot. They're not too cold. They're not hungry. They're not tired. They're not bored. They're not hurt. And we end up doing a really good job at that. But here's the problem. As kids get older, when you are doing everything for them like that, Not only is it hard for them already to communicate, but when they have people that are doing everything for them, they never learn how to communicate because they don't ever have to. It's never a need because all of their needs are already met all the time. And so as they get older, the frustration goes up on you and your child and the ability to communicate goes down. And so a lot of parents... No one else can take care of your kids because they don't know your kids' needs like you do because your kids don't communicate. So let's change that. So here's five things that you can do to encourage your child to communicate. I'm going to say it and then I'll explain all of them. Step one, do less so your child does more. Step two, wait a little. Step three, create lots of practice opportunities. Step four, persist. Step five, position yourself. So the first step is to do less for your child. So this means that you will force your child to work a little for the things that he or she wants. Instead of you foreseeing the need and handing it over, which is what we've learned to be very good at, I'm going to teach you how to get your child to communicate, but I'm going to use an example that we've all seen so that you can see it played out in a different way, but This is essentially what you're going to start doing with your kid with everything, not in this exact way, but getting your child to work for what they want is the way that they can communicate. So have you ever seen or maybe you had a dad like this or you've seen this situation on TV or something? A teenager walks up to her dad and says, hey, dad, can I have some money? Sure. Sure, daughter. What for? Oh, because me and my friends are going to the mall. Whatever. And then the dad pulls out a $20 bill, holds it up. And then when the daughter goes to grab it, the dad pulls it back and then points to his cheek so that his daughter gives him a kiss on the cheek. And so the daughter like, okay, gives dad a kiss on the cheek and then he gives her the money. So have you ever seen that played out? Well, the reason that that is common is because teenagers pull back from their parents and they don't care about their parents. All they want to do is hang out with their friends. And it's a dad's cute way of getting a little affection from his daughter 
because he has bait in his hands. He has money. She wants money, so she's going to give him affection that otherwise she would never give him. You get the point. Okay, that was just breaking that down. So that's essentially what you're going to start doing with your kiddos. If your child wants something, instead of just giving it to them, so like your kid wants a juice, right? Instead of you knowing that they want juice and just handing them the juice, they are going to give you some sort of signal before you hand it over. They have their way of letting you know that they want something and you're and you're going, okay, I know that my child wants juice. So what you're going to do is you're going to hold up the juice and you're not going to just hand it over. You're going to hold it up and you're going to wait for some sort of signal. Now, with our kiddos that don't have any neurological disorders or kiddos that are neurotypical, the ones that don't have any trouble learning this, if you were to do that, if they said, hey, mom, I want juice and you held it back, they would say, can I have the juice? Or they would reach out or they would go to grab the juice or they would realize that you're not giving them the juice and they would go, oh, sorry, please, can I have the juice? Because usually we want our kids to always have manners, which doesn't apply for kids with autism, by the way. You never need to force your kids to say please or any of those polite words because there's a whole lot of other words that are more important if someone is having trouble learning how to speak. But that's how it would play out with a neurotypical kid is that you would hold the juice up and they would say, can I please have it? And then you'd give it to them. Some of our kiddos are nonverbal. Some of them aren't. I cannot speak for everyone. But the very little ones, most likely they have trouble with communication. So in the scenario of the juice, you would hold the juice back a little and wait for them to give you some sort of signal. You would wait for them to give you eye contact or to reach or point or verbalize or some sort of signal that says, I want the juice. And as soon as they give you that signal, you give them the juice and you say, oh, you want juice and you give it to them. And then you're telling them, I heard you. I see you. I know what you want. Here you go. And so the juice is the reward for them communicating. And I want for you to start doing this with every activity you do with your kid. So if you're playing with toys, hold the toy just out of reach when they want another one. Or if you're doing social play, wait for an eye glance before doing that activity again. Or when you're giving meals, only give a little bit so they have to ask you for more. If you're bathing them, only give them one little ducky at a time instead of pouring the entire bucket of ducks in the bathtub. When you're reading a book, wait to turn the page until your child gestures wanting the next page. When you're doing chores, could you give your child a towel when wiping something down? Could you hold it slightly out of reach so your child reaches for it? Just remember, if they reach, that's a gesture. So if your child uses crying for communication, which a lot of them do, like I was saying before, out of frustration, if you can anticipate what they want before they cry, then you can be one step ahead of them. So if you know that it's mealtime, you know they're hungry or they're about to be hungry, get out three items of food before they make it to the pantry. 
Then you can line them up on the counter and wait for them to reach for one of the things that they want. So if your child doesn't do anything and just stands there, which is common, you'll have to do a little bit more work. Pick up something that you know that they'll want. So for Remy, she loves soup. She loves soup. I know the kind of soup she likes. She likes chicken noodle. She also likes those raviolis in the can. She used to like those. So if I knew that she was going to want soup and I laid out three things on the counter, one good thing is if you know what they'll want, you can put maybe just two choices. You could put two choices on the counter One thing that you know she'll want and one thing you know that she totally won't want. So like I could put a bag of carrots and then I could also put a can of soup. So I know she'll want the soup. I know she won't want the carrots, but you're giving her a choice. So if that's the case, if they just stand there and they don't do anything, you can push the thing that they want closer and say, do you want soup? And just outside of their reach and give them an opportunity to reach for it. You don't want to make this so hard that they just don't respond. If they are having a hard time or they're not understanding what you're trying to get them to do, just exaggerate what you're saying. Give them a lot of opportunities and a lot of clues. Do 90% of the work and then let them do the rest. So here are some tips on how you can almost force your child to communicate with you their needs. And like I was saying before, if they give you any sort of communication that's not crying, you need to respond to that communication right away and every time. And this might sound counterintuitive to the regular parenting that you're used to, but you want to reward communication at the highest level. If your child were to open up the freezer and point to the ice cream and it's the middle of the day on a Tuesday and they're pointing to the ice cream, that is a huge form of communication and I am giving you permission to get your kid a bowl of ice cream. You always need to reward your kid for making any sort of communication. Now. You can apply the parenting rules like no eating ice cream before your dinner. You can apply all those rules after your child has mastered communication. Then you can start applying all those rules. But if your kid wants ice cream in the middle of the day and they're pointing to the ice cream, you give them ice cream. So I just wanted to reiterate the point that any form of communication that is not crying should be honored. Well, you know. Within reason, of course, if your child just out loud all of a sudden said, hey, mom, take me to Disneyland, like I'm not saying take them to Disneyland. Well, if your child was able to say that, maybe you should take them to Disneyland. But I'm just saying you kind of get the point. In our home, we always try to make things as easy as possible. So if you have a playroom or your living room or your child's bedroom or your bedroom or wherever your child has their toys, A lot of times we put all the toys easily accessible so that they can just play with them whenever they want. I'm starting to realize after 16 years as being a parent, it took me 16 years, 
that that is a really bad idea to have all of their toys accessible to them all the time. And I'm saying I'm just learning this 16 years, a little bit too late. But do you ever wonder why your house is a disaster? This is partly why, but this isn't what the chapter is about. So what you can do, this is to encourage communication. Say your child likes cars, Legos, and blocks. So you know that's their favorite things to play with. So don't have those in buckets at eye level ready to play with at any time. What you can do is you can get buckets with lids on them, ones that your kids can't open, clear buckets to be even better so you could see what's inside, and put them out of reach. Put them where your kid can't reach them, but in sight. They can see them, but they can't reach them. Now your child cannot access these things without going through you first. And this is a huge, huge, huge motivator for them to communicate because you know it's something they want to play with. So if they come in the room and they really want to play with cars, but the cars are on a shelf in a bucket that they can't reach, I know a lot of these kids are really good climbers and you don't want to put it in an area that they'll try to get and hurt themselves, but try to put it in an area that they really need you to get it. So say it's cars in a in a bucket on a shelf. What you're looking for is for them to gesture or tug on your shirt, tap you on the shoulder, point, signal somehow they want that toy. And as soon as they give you that kind of signal, You take it down right away and you hand them the bucket. Now, this is a second opportunity for them to communicate. You've just handed them a bucket that they can't open, which normally that's not what us moms do. We open it. Oh, here you go. Here's everything. So you hand them the bucket. Now they can't open it. They have to have another form of communication to tell you to open it. They're handing it back to you, pushing it in front of you giving you eye contact, whatever it is. So now you've just created two opportunities for your child to communicate with you. So as soon as they give you that communication, you take the bucket and you open it up and you say, oh, you want me to open it. So you have to say it with a lot of affect. Oh, you want me to open the bucket. Okay, I'll open it. So you open it, you take out the toys and then you give it to them. Or you could take out the toys and then let him request the toy. I mean, you can keep this going. But there is a fine line. I realize this. This is why this exercise is uncomfortable. Because if you cross that fine line, your child could have a meltdown. And I promise you, your child is going to have some meltdowns when you start applying these. The goal, this is what I learned in the beginning. One of the goals is that you're always trying to play with that line. You always want to dance with that line. If you cross the line, they'll have a meltdown. And then whatever you're trying to teach them is ineffective. But if you can reach that line, if you can get really close to that line right before they have a meltdown and they're able to communicate or they're able to do the thing that you wanted them to do, that is a huge win. It does something to them. It makes them remember for next time. So don't be afraid of meltdowns. Don't be afraid of pushback. This is uncomfortable. Your kid is used to you doing everything for them. So, you know, sometimes meltdowns happen. But this is a really good practice that you could do. Take all the stuff that your kid loves, 
put it in containers that they can't reach, put it on the shelf, and you can start to teach them how to communicate. If you know that they want a certain something, you can narrate through it. Go up to them, take their hand, tap you on the shoulder with their hand and say, mom, blocks. And of course, they can't repeat that, but you say it anyway. And then you can like use their hand to point to the blocks. So you're teaching them how to communicate. And then through time, they'll start to get it. One of the really helpful things when you are doing these activities is to exaggerate your gestures. So if you know that your child's looking for something, say they're looking for that car and you could tell they're looking for it. So you just narrate, narrate what they're thinking and say it out loud. So they hear it verbally, what they are trying to do. So say they're looking around for their car and you've put it out of sight and you see them looking around for it. You can say, Charlie, do you want the car? And then you can just say, where's the car? And make a huge hand gesture like, where's the car? And look around. And when they can start seeing you gesture like that, they'll start to understand what gestures look like and how to make them themselves. So everything that you do with your child, it's a really good idea to narrate through it. So there are three things that I think are really essential when you're teaching your kid how to communicate and you're starting to apply all of these tactics. Teaching your child the word no, it can make your life so much easier. And I'm sure it's been a huge pain point for you. For Remy, the word no was crying and screaming. That's not really appropriate. So let's teach them the appropriate way to say no. Another one that's really important to learn is how to choose something, how to make a choice. And that can make your life a lot easier too. How you do this is everything that your kid wants, make it a choice. If you know that they want Cheerios, you know it, they know it, you know it, everyone in the room knows it, then take out the Cheerios and take out something they don't want, like carrots, and have them choose. Do you want Cheerios or do you want carrots? If they look at the Cheerios, if they reach for the Cheerios, if they do anything for the Cheerios, you go, oh, you want Cheerios. And then you can push it towards them. This is just something you have to do with everything. It gives them a sense of power, like that they have a choice in the matter. And then it's also teaching them what communication does. Then they're going, yeah, I want Cheerios. So pointing, saying no, and making choices, it's something that you got to work on. So for the nonverbal kiddos, saying no, well, that's not going to happen. A lot of times we think, well, maybe we can just teach them how to nod their head, like back and forth. Okay, well, that's probably not going to happen either. But one thing that you can start with, like I was saying, when you give them two choices, okay, Cheerios or carrots, that's an example. Say you know that they want Cheerios. They're not pointing and they're not doing anything to choose Cheerios. Push the carrots in front of them as if they said they wanted carrots. You know they don't want carrots. So if their typical response is to cry or scream or kick or run away, 
I don't want that to happen. But if they don't want the carrots, you show them, you take their hand and you push the carrots away. So pushing things away is a really good way to teach your kids how to say no. And it's universal. Everyone understands if someone doesn't want something and they push it away, you know that that word is a no. So that's a really good way to teach the word no is just to push it away. So to practice, you just keep giving them things that they don't want. And then they start to learn how to push it away when they say no. And when they push it away, then you go, oh, no, you don't want the carrots. I'm going to tell you how to get them to point now. Okay, pointing, it takes a while. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a while, but it can be done. Pointing is a really, really big form of nonverbal communication, and it's something autistic kids have a hard time doing. This is how you can start. To make a pointing finger by putting your hands down and having your finger point out, that is a very difficult thing to do. It's easy for you. It isn't easy for your kids. So you don't want to start teaching them by putting their finger out. Reaching is the first step. Reaching with their arm is the first step. So if you know they want something, put that thing in their view and you take your hand on their hand and you reach for it and you go, oh, you want this. You want Cheerios. And you say it out loud and you do hand over hand. That's ABA talk, hand over hand. So you gesture with their hand. Oh, you want this. Okay, here you go. And then you can give it to them. So every time they want something, make it a point to have them point to it and always give them choices. So then you can start working up to it. When you give them choices, do you want Cheerios or do you want carrots? and their eyes go to the Cheerios or they start reaching for the Cheerios, you can help them along by pointing their arm towards the Cheerios and going, oh, okay, you want Cheerios. Now, once they've done that for a while, then you can start having them make the pointy finger. And it's probably going to be really hard for them at first because they're not used to it. So you just have to do that with your hand. You put your hand over their hand, make the point, And then every time they're pointing, you help them by putting your hand over their hand and making the point and make it very exaggerated. And eventually, I promise you, they will start pointing. They will start pointing at what they want. And I was just thinking about this yesterday. We've been doing this with Remy for so long. It's like second nature. None of us even think about it. But every time she's going to eat, we give her a choice. Do you want this or do you want this? And she'll point. And now, now it's really cool because now she's starting to talk. Now she's able to say yes and no. And so we always give her a choice. Do you want soup? Yes. She'll say yes. And it's like, oh, you want soup. Here you go. Do you want carrots? No. Oh, you don't want carrots. Okay. We won't give you any carrots. So uh, she's five. She's been doing this for a long time. We've been working with her for a long time. So she's mastered this skill. She mastered it a long time ago. And I know your child can too. It just takes a little bit of work. I do want to say that when, whenever you know that your child is feeling a certain way 
if they're frustrated, if they're mad, if they want something, if they don't want something. It kind of goes along with what I was talking about before, but narrate their feelings. It starts to label how they feel so that as they develop language, they understand what they're feeling at the time. So if Remy is frustrated, I will say, I'm frustrated. And so this just tells Remy, first of all, that we hear her, we know what she's feeling. And then it also tells her, oh, there's a name for what I'm feeling. So that as she gets older, we can say, how are you feeling? And she can say, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I am tired. I'm hungry. I am happy. I uh, don't want to do that, whatever it is. So always narrate your child's feelings. Always narrate what's going on, what you're doing, sound effects, gestures, all of those things. If you can be exaggerated and animated the more the better, because in autism, it's harder for them to understand what people's subtle facial expressions and tone of voice mean. So if you exaggerate them, they understand a lot better. Okay, so before I leave you, I just wanted to recap a little and give you some of the pointers I was talking about, maybe add a couple. Uh, One of them is make things not so accessible for your kids. So they have to go through you to get it. Uh, one thing is if they like to color, this this is going to sound a little weird, but you can put each crayon in a separate plastic baggie. So they have to give you the baggie to open the baggie so that you can get the crayon out. So you can do this with every crayon. Try five of them. And then you can give them the crayon in the bag and they have to give it back to you to open And if they give it back to you, open it. Oh, you want me to open? So that's a pointer. So put things in clear plastic bins out of their reach. Always give them choices. Always give at least two different choices. Even though one thing might be something you know they want, one thing might be something you know they don't want, give them choices. Use really exaggerated gestures and narrate everything that you say to them. And here's the refrigerator list. So I love this. At the end of every chapter in the book, there's a refrigerator list. And it just kind of goes over what was talked about in the chapter. So here it is. Do less so your child will do more. Pause and wait for a gesture, eye contact, or vocalization. Add gestures to steps of joint activities during play and caregiving routines. Exaggerate facial expressions and gestures during play and caregiving. Divide up materials to practice give me gestures during play. Build in barriers so your child needs help. Point to objects and pictures and wait for your child to follow. Put simple words to your child's body language and to yours. Build steps for communication exchanges into key activities social and toy slash object play, meals, caregiving, bathing, dressing, changing, bedtime, and household chores. So I think I covered everything in the chapter. This one, it wasn't a lot of things in the chapter, but it's going to take you some time to start doing these things with your kids. And I believe in you. I believe in your child. Your child is meant to do great things. 
It's frustrating trying to parent a child that doesn't communicate with you. And this is a really good way to get them starting to communicate. And I believe in this book and these teachings so much because we've done it with our daughter and we've seen the transformation. So moms, all you moms out there that do everything for everyone, I want you to start taking a step back. You can help, but don't do everything for your kid. And you can see how much they develop because of that. So thank you for coming and listening to my podcast. If you wouldn't mind, please rate and review the show. This is the best way for other people to find the show. And my goal is to really help any parent who's struggling with raising their kids with neurological disorders. I think everyone should have the tools that they need so that they can feel empowered and that they can really just make it through the day. So if you rate and review the show, first of all, I appreciate it and I can see what the show is doing for you. And also you can just share it with other people because people look at the ratings and then it determines whether they want to listen or not. And so you would be doing everyone a huge service if you could do that and it would really make me happy so thank you so much for coming i can't wait to dive into next week's topic um find me on social media say hi i answer all my dms